My friends, so last year, around this time, so many people were talking about the year of 2020, uh, getting a clear vision, uh, lots of hopes and dreams to see things clearly, uh, uh, New Year's resolutions, plans for the new year, plans for the new decade. Isn't it strange looking back now at that year and thinking about all those ideas we had, what was going on, what we were going to do, and yet all that talk about wanting to see things clearly isn't that exactly what we got? The, the year 2020 was a year that did open our eyes to the reality of the things in this world. We just didn't like what we saw. It, isn't it crazy to think that this around this time last year, it seemed like the biggest news story of the year might be those fires that covered most of Australia. We were seeing the devastating effects of climate change and how fragile our earth is and our lives in it. Then COVID hit. Things got closer to home, revealing our food insecurities, how we couldn't find yeast, uh, the precarious financial situation that many people live in, the inadequacies of our health care system and our our long-term care for seniors. The lack of toilet paper revealed perhaps our human tendency to hoard in a time of crisis rather than risk generosity. And then we watched... On the news is Ahmed Aubrey, uh, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd were, were murdered. Our, our eyes were opened again, probably, to the, the realities of the systematic racism and the hatred that our black and indigenous brothers and sisters face. A lot of us saw, maybe for the first time, the way that we have been living blinded by our white privilege and, and, and the, the the reality that we just need to take seriously the voices of this black indigenous people of color uh, that are dying on the streets. We saw deep divisions within our culture, this huge division in political, in the political world and the political parties, the, the distrust and the brokenness of both our system and our leaders, as well as in our communities. We have seen these same divisions revealing themselves in the church. I think for myself, I've I've seen personally and been deeply troubled by the the failure of discipleship that seems so evident in the lives of many of those who call themselves Christians, who say that they follow Jesus. As one uh, person has said recently, evangelicals have a Jesus problem. They never say Jesus. Uh, One of my favorite theologians, Miroslav Volf, responded to this comment. He says, frightening as it sounds, this might be right. Like, prove him wrong. Give him examples of where evangelicals, particularly particularly the evangelicals we see south of the border, right? Prove him wrong. Giving examples of where they rely on Jesus in their views on poverty, immigration, health, law enforcement, war, and the environment. One of the things that I think that we can see clearly now in 2020, more clearly now in 2021 than we did in 2020, is that our discipleship has been formed by many things and many voices, but the, the one that should be most prominent, the person who is called to be the center of our faith, has often been domesticated or silenced. And so what's the goal of 2021? Like, do we even dare attempt to make a goal? Uh, Perhaps where 2020 gave us a clearer vision of the reality of the world that we live in, maybe 2021 is to be the year of healing, of recentering and realigning our discipleship with the way of the crucified Jesus of Nazareth.
I, I actually think healing is a good and important analogy, right? If, if you're healing from something serious, it requires addressing the issue, maybe a surgery and you need to remove a tumor, right? After that surgery and, and addressing the issue, it requires ongoing care and attention. We, we want to make sure that that wound doesn't become infected to make things worse than they were before. It, it takes attention that we, we pay attention to what's happening there. We, we don't move beyond what our body is ready to do yet. But, but the hope is that eventually we'll become stronger and healthier than we were. And we won't have to deal with that issue anymore because it has actually been dealt with. So if we're thinking about something like healing in the area of racial injustice, it's a helpful reminder to think racial injustice hasn't gone away since it's moved off the news cycle. More innocent black people have been murdered. More indigenous people continue to suffer from colonial attitudes and actions that keep them marginalized and traumatized. Uh, posting a blackout on Instagram doesn't take away the tumor. The, the danger is that we think, oh, we made progress. Now let's move beyond that. But we actually leave an open wound that can get infected and rot. And so as people who follow in the way of Jesus, we are called to the real work of healing and restoration and reconciliation so that we can keep learning and growing and changing and repenting. I love how Drew Hart writes that the form and the way are that of Jesus of Nazareth, who invited people to repent from old social order and turn towards God's kingdom by following after him. Jesus emptied himself and took on human form. All of this is a really long way of just saying that across all of our sites in the new year, we are focusing in on the gospel of Matthew. Uh, this, there's no timeline for this series. We just want to spend this year looking at the life of Jesus and listening to what he would teach us. We want 2021 to be a year where we take an intentional focus to fix our eyes on the story of Jesus. Being intentional not to manipulate the Bible story to make us feel good, but to read it carefully so that we centralize the things that Jesus centralizes. And we hear that subversive social lifestyle that Jesus is calling us. The tagline for this series is Kingdom Culture. Which, which only makes sense to us if we actually believe that there is something different about the kingdom of Jesus than the world that we live in. Otherwise, we would just call it like the Gospel of Matthew, culture. Right? By adding this word kingdom, we are saying that Jesus is the king. That living in the kingdom of Jesus means that we are different, that we are shaped by different values than the world around us. That when Christians talk about immigration or policing or poverty or health or climate change, we come from a foundationally different place than the rest of the world. So I think then we need to be suspicious if our, if our thinking on all of these issues lines up perfectly with our neighbors who don't know the way of Jesus. And I would be 100% sure that our thinking is wrong if our policies on all of those issues align perfectly with one political party. Sure, there will be overlap between what we think about issues and what the culture around us believes. There are political parties who are very Jesus-like in their views on poverty and health and so on. Uh, it's not that there isn't overlap. It's not even that Christians will disagree about what the right way is. It's, but we, what we need to remember is that there is no country and there is no political party that is a substitute for the kingdom of God. 
And so when we call this series Kingdom Culture, it means that we are going into the Gospel of Matthew to be taught how to live as people who say that Jesus is King. And we expect that that will be different than the normal culture around us. So then let's turn our attention to the Gospel of Matthew. I love this introduction by Anna Case Winters. She writes, This gospel was written in a time when there was conflict and division in the community of faith, when, there, when some were insiders and others were outsiders, when political and religious leaders were co-opted, mistrusted, and discredited, when the great majority of common people people were without power when cultures clashed. Matthew has a word for us that we urgently need to hear. It is a message about who Jesus is and what he did and taught. In these texts, we see Jesus facing up to conflict and controversy, ministering at the margins, overturning presuppositions about insiders and outsiders, privileging the powerless, demonstrating the authority of ethical leadership, challenging allegiance to empire, and pointing out a wider divine embrace than many dared imagine. And this is the story that Matthew wants us to see and hear which to me sounds like Matthew is actually an extremely relevant for the world we find ourselves in today. And so let's begin. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says in the Common English Bible, A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Right away, we have three important things to say right at the very beginning in verse 1. The first is that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is the title, Messiah. We could say it means king. And so for the rest of this series, I will be translating the word Christ to King for us. I will talk about King Jesus. And I know that we don't have a lot of kings in our day and age, but we don't think about them very often. It is a little bit foreign to our mindset and thinking. However, I also think that our imaginations are still... Uh, caught up enough in the world of kingdoms and kings and princesses and dragons and all of those things that when I talk about a king and a kingdom, we can catch the idea of what this means for us. Secondly, what Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus is part of the line and story of the Jewish people. He is part of the line of Abraham and David. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish king that was talked about from Genesis to Malachi. The New Testament is not God's plan B after a failed experiment with the Jewish people. Jesus is rather the revelation of his plan A. Matthew is the joyful announcement of the good news that King Jesus has come, that the one who has been awaited since the beginning is now arrived and he has brought with him the reign of God to earth. And thirdly, and maybe this is more interesting than important, uh, but the second word of this gospel, the word that is translated in the Common English Bible as record, the record of uh, Jesus, is uh, in the Greek is Genesis. Now, one could read this then as the Genesis of King Jesus. Why would Matthew choose that word? Uh, the word can mean genealogy, it can also mean birth, but, but there are other words in Greek that are more precise for genealogy or birth. Um, So you have to ask, like, why did Matthew choose this key noun, Genesis, at the very beginning of his gospel? Maybe he wants us to go all the way back to the first book of the Hebrew scripture. 
There in the Greek Septuagint, the, the same word Genesis is used in Genesis 5 verse 1. Our translation then could be, this is the genesis of, a, of humanity. This is the generations of Adam. The genesis of human beings. I used again in Genesis 2 verse 4. Again, it could be the genesis of the earth and the heavens. And so perhaps what Matthew is trying to do in this opening sentence is, is to remind us again of this new Genesis by, by imitating these two phrases, the, the Genesis of the cosmos, the Genesis of humanity. He's saying, and remember, Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, God is bringing a new beginning. He's saying, remember this. Because we are about to see a new genesis, a new birth, a new reality as God makes a new beginning in the story of Abraham and David. And it's this revelation of King Jesus. And then Matthew gives us a long, long list of names that I skip. And let's be honest, you skip it too, right? Um, it, but when we do, we, we miss something so beautiful and profound because... But because there's a hint of what is to come found in this story. And if you read over these lists of names, what you'll discover is that Matthew has given us a list of six groups of seven names. This is important because seven was and is the most powerful symbolic number. It symbolizes completeness, wholeness, fullness. And so then to be born at the beginning of the seventh seven in this sequence is clearly meant to say that Jesus is the climax of the whole list. N.T. Wright writes, The birth, this birth, Matthew is saying, is what Israel has been waiting for for 2,000 years. Now, this actually really shouldn't be that strange, right? Jesus is the seventh seven, the completeness, fullness of the promise of Israel, the one who will be king over all. All of this makes sense, and you would expect that in the story at the beginning of Jesus. What is strange is these four appearances in this list. In a traditional genealogy, uh, what is important is the fathers and the sons. Women don't have a place in an ancient genealogy, and yet there are four women found in this story. Verse 3 says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Verse 5, Solomon, Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Also in verse 5, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And then in verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah, or as we know her, Bathsheba. Some commentators, preachers, would like us to focus on the scandal of these women. They would like us to think of them as the unrighteous Gentiles who find their way into the kingdom. Uh, and maybe some of that is true. Some of these women definitely are Gentiles. Ruth isn't just a Gentile. She's a Moabite woman, which is basically shorthand in the Hebrew scriptures for the temptress who leads Israel away from faithfulness to God. And yet I find that reading these women as the, the scandalous, sexually promiscuous, sometimes people talk about these, these women, I find that really troubling. Uh, it's, it's troubling to actually cast them as the scandalous women, because I don't think that's who they are. Tamar, for example, her, her story is born in tragedy. Her husband dies. She then suffers more loss and pain, and eventually she is wronged by her in-laws and is used for, by, the self, by the selfishness of others. And however, she, she uses her ingenuity, uh, she uses her limited resources to remain a part of the story of God. Rahab isn't an Israelite, yet she finds her way into the story of Israel's king. 
Ruth the Moabite, rather than being the one who leads Israel astray, actually becomes a model of faith and faithfulness. The wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, is the victim of the lusts of a man in power. I love that Matthew chose to include these women in his story. I picture here of an artist's rendition of these women. And, and notice how each bears, wears a crown, symbolizing their part in the royal story of King Jesus. These women stand as a testament that God is in the business of recycling damage and loss and trauma and abuse and turning it into something redemptive and new. Like God did not choose people who had not experienced trauma. God doesn't choose people whose family tree is flawless and good. God works with real people in real situations. People whose lives have been marred by the sin and abuse of others. The, the story of these four women in the genesis of King Jesus is that everyone can get in on the Jesus story. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham that there is a blessing to the whole world. And the whole world isn't just those who have it together, those who have the right religion or the right family tree. The whole world is not those who have never been abused or abused. The whole world isn't just those who look and think and act like us. No, the whole world includes everyone in all of their situations. The, the story of these four women in the genesis of King Jesus is that the revolution of King Jesus is generational. It works its way from generation to generation. Uh, Pastor Glenn Packiam observes that rather than singing, Mary, did you know, uh, at Christmas, because obviously Mary did know. She knew. Just listen, she knew. Rather than singing that song, we should sing, Rahab, did you know? Tamar, did you know? Because each one of these women died not knowing that they were being grafted into the family tree of King Jesus. When the Messiah, the longed for, the waited for, the fulfillment of Israel's longing, the beginning of the establishment of God's kingdom on earth would come, four unlikely women find their place in that family tree. So Glenn Packiam says it so well, the arrival of Jesus reminds us that God is faithful to redeem our past and redirect our future. The arrival of Jesus reminds us that God is faithful to redeem our past and re redirect our future. Friends, this is my hope and prayer for us in 2021. Start of a new year, maybe you, uh, like me, have gotten back on the treadmill, you've made some resolutions about what you want to do this year, what you want to accomplish. Um, hey, you know what? January 1st is as good a time as any to restart those things. And yet the passing of 365 days does not change anything. It, it doesn't bring us a new hope. But the arrival of Jesus does. It can re, reminds us that God is faithful to redeem our past and redirect our future. What's happened to you? The things that you have gone through, maybe in 2020 or maybe farther back than that. Our hope is that God is able to redeem that. The story of these four women remind us that it take, may take generations to see it happen. But it is possible. 
that our tragedies and our pain and our trauma can all be redeemed. And that as we walk into and see this unfolding of this story of God, it also then redirects our future in this moment. That there is hope now in this walk, that we can walk differently. As we walk into 2021, let us be listening to King Jesus, allowing him to direct our future in the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we will have in this next year and on. Grace and peace.